Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeart Podcasts. And how the tech are you? So, longtime Tech Stuff listeners know that I like to mix it up a bit on this show. I have some episodes that focus on things like bleeding-edge technologies, you know, like um, quantum computing. And then I do others that look back to you know, much less complicated and certainly less wibbly-wobbly advancements in tech. And today we'll be talking about one of the examples in that second category, because I wanted to chat about can openers. Now, first off, there's a good chance you've heard what is arguably one of the most interesting facts about can openers, namely that it took nearly 50 years from the invention of the tin can to the invention of the tin can opener, which for me brings to mind this image of a very hungry person buried in a pile of cans saying, okay, now what? But let's turn the clock back to the late 18th century and talk about what precipitated the invention of the tin can in the first place. It was war. More specifically, it was the tail end of the French Revolutionary Wars, and those, of course, would then transition into the Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, that way it was just convenient to go from war to war. And very often in the descriptions of can openers and their history, Napoleon Bonaparte gets thrown into the story. Uh, I do not know how accurate it is to say that Napoleon Bonaparte was instrumental in this. He may very well have been, 
but the timing is a little iffy. So the timing is typically set around 1795. So I'll get to why Napoleon may or may not have been involved in this particular part of the story. But the the basis of this problem was getting fresh or at least unspoiled food to soldiers who were out in the field. One of the challenges that armies faced was that, you know, you got to feed all those folks who are fighting on your side or else they don't fight so good no more. And the darndest thing was that sometimes you could win a battle in a region and you could actually take territory, but the people in that region just seemed reluctant to sell or share food with you for some reason, just because you'd been shooting all their neighbors and relatives. So it was really the height of rudeness. And this meant that you had to depend upon your own supply lines to bring food from much further back up to the front. And then you would be able to provide supplies to your troops. But obviously these supply lines had lots of challenges, right? For one thing, they were a really attractive target. If you could disrupt your enemy's supply lines, you could starve out their forces, and that meant that you were much more likely to secure a victory. There was a good chance that they were going to surrender because otherwise they would be starving to death. Uh, but even if you weren't able to disrupt the supply lines directly, if the lines are extended far enough, then they're going to encounter problems of their own, whether those are problems because of weather or terrain or just the distances they have to travel. Often, by the time the supplies got to the front, the food was spoiled. It could even be to the point of being inedible or even dangerous to eat. Now, you may have heard the phrase, an army marches on its stomach. If you cannot feed your soldiers, you're going to have a real rough go of it. And so the French army offered a reward of 12,000 francs. If it hadn't been for the French Revolution, it would have been a princely sum, but uh, the royalty had found themselves about a head shorter at this point. Anyway, 12,000 francs would go a really long way, and obviously this was so that innovators would be incentivized to come up with better ways to preserve food. This strategy of offering a sizable reward in return for innovation would become a tried and true methodology from that point forward. In fact, you could argue DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, does the same sort of thing, you know, with things like their grand challenges or the X Prize, right? You end up setting a very tough challenge that we need to solve and you attach a hefty prize to it. And then next thing you know, you got a bunch of smarty pants all over the place trying to be the first to do that. Now, most accounts say that whomever issued the offer did so around 1795. And again, this is why I say Napoleon may or may not have been the dude who did this. Uh, in 1795, Napoleon was actually still rising through the ranks of the French military. He did become the commander of the Army of the Interior in 1795, in late 1795. So presumably he could have been in charge of making this proclamation. But he was not in command of all of France. He had not become the Emperor Bonaparte at this point. So whether he was directly responsible for issuing this order or that it maybe it was some other commander or group of commanders, I'm not entirely sure. But it's close enough where I guess you could say Bonaparte made this 
announcement and you know it's it's close it, it could very well be true and maybe there's even documentation somewhere that really proves it but as i was going through it was like a lot of people making the assertion but not pointing to any actual like incident where it was documented proof it was just okay there was a 12,000 franc reward announced that much seems to be true and maybe napoleon bonaparte was the person who said it but you know it's kind of fun to say Napoleon Bonaparte's the reason why we have can openers, even though it's a long journey from there. Whomever it was who did announce the reward obviously inspired a ton of folks to get to work to try and suss out a way to preserve food better so that it could survive the long journey through a supply line. And one of those people was a guy named Nicolas Francois Appert. Spoiler alert, uh, no pun intended, since we're talking about food spoilage. Uh, he also has nothing to do with can openers directly. Nicholas Appert did not invent the can opener. But he does have something to do with the process of canning. Now, Appert was not an engineer. He was not an inventor, at least not the technological kind of inventor. He was a chef and a distiller of alcohol. And he was also a confectioner, a candy maker kind of the Willy Wonka of his time. He was inspired by this offer of a reward. And through that inspiration, he indulged in a lot of experimentation that ultimately would lead to the process of canning. Not cans, not tin cans, but the process of canning food in order to preserve it. And that process involves heat treating the food and the container and thus sterilizing the container, and then sealing it and keeping that seal nice and, and intact, and that this would keep food fresh indefinitely. Appert used glass jars, and he would seal the glass jars with corks and hold those corks in place with uh, a wire. So he would you know wrap wire around the container to hold the cork sealed shut. He would also use sealing wax to help keep the seal intact. And he would place the the sealed containers in a bath of boiling water. Uh, typically, he would cover the jars in canvas first to protect them so that they wouldn't shatter. And he experimented for more than a decade. In fact, it was around 14 years of trying different things before he found a process that he could replicate pretty consistently. And one interesting thing about Appert is that his method worked, but he didn't know why it worked. It was weird that he had found a way that actually seemed to preserve food effectively, but he wasn't sure what the mechanism was. Why did this specific process result in food that would stay fresh longer? He thought maybe it had something to do with forcing air out of the container. He was thinking that, you know, winemakers often would do the same thing, that when they would bottle wine, they would put the wine bottle uh, in a, a boiling bath in order to force air out before corking it, and that this would prevent the wine from going bad if you were storing it for any length of time and not, you know, just drinking it up right away. So he thought, well, maybe the same thing is true for food. Maybe it's just the air, like somehow the air has some sort of corruptible element to it. Through his experiments, he figured out that 
the two things that mattered the most, at least that appeared to matter the most out of the entire process, was that it was important to try and keep the food out of contact with, quote unquote, the exterior air, and that the hot water bath was absolutely essential. That if you did not put the container in a hot water bath, the food would still spoil inside the jar. He still wasn't sure why this was the case. That was a bit of a pickle. Uh, actually, many methods of pickling involved this process. No, it was a pickle because part of the requirement for being able to claim those 12,000 francs was that whoever came up with the method needed to be able to explain their methodology and actually publish it so that everyone could benefit from the discovery. But it's very hard to describe why something works when you don't understand it yourself. So Appert did his best, and in 1810, he published his findings in a work that was titled The Art of Preserving All Kinds of Animal and Vegetable Substances for Many Years. Catchy title. Ultimately, while his work described the process, and that process was effective, it actually missed out on what made it effective. In fact, it would be several decades before Louis Pasteur would make the discoveries of his own that would explain why canning was effective. Pasteur explained that microorganisms were responsible for things like spoilage. Uh, in fact, he identified that different microbes were involved in different fermentation processes. He said, oh, well, it's not just one thing. It's different organisms that do these different processes. That's why all this stuff works. He also discovered that if you were to heat up, say, foods or liquids, to around 120 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, or between 50 to 60 degrees Celsius, it would kill the microbes, and it would stop the spoiling or the fermenting process. And if you were to seal, like hermetically seal the material away from the outside world, assuming the seal was good, then the food or liquid inside should be good for a very long time. And now we call this process pasteurization. But all Appert this was like half a century earlier. It was before Pasteur had done any of this work. He had no way of knowing that what he was doing in his canning process was he was killing off these tiny little critters. In fact, critters so small they couldn't be seen with the naked eye and thus preventing them from spoiling the food that was stored inside these jars. But the important thing was it worked. But he was using jars. He was not using tin cans. He received the reward of 12,000 francs, and he used it to establish a cannery. And in fact, that business would remain in operation until the 1930s. It, it lasted a, more than a century. But his part of our story effectively ends here. Now, a pair's process was useful, but his choice of container left a little bit to be desired because glass jars are breakable. And what was really needed, especially for the purposes of transporting military supplies was a container that would be more resilient to, you know, the bumps and knocks of travel. Enter the English merchant, Peter Durand. So while Appert was getting ready to receive a big old pile of francs over in France, Durand was awaiting the award of a patent. He had come up with this idea to store food in various containers, essentially using Appert's process. But he was thinking that the containers could not just be something like a jar or pottery. It could actually be made out of metal cans that were primarily made out of iron, but then coated in a thin layer of tin. Durand's patent included the basic process of canning. 
that whatever you wanted to preserve needed to be put into a container, that the container needed to be partly but not entirely sealed, an important distinction, and then the can and its contents needed to be heated up either in an oven or you know, preferably in a boiling water bath. He was a little loosey-goosey on details like how long you needed to heat up the container. He would argue that it depended upon the size of the container and what you had inside of it. Uh, he also was loosey-goosey on how hot it needed to be. But he did say that after this heating process, then it needed to be sealed airtight. Uh, and it made sense that you didn't want to have it sealed before you started the heating process, because obviously if you seal the container shut and then you start heating it up really hot, you're going to have pressure building up inside that container. And next thing you know, you've got yourself a boom uh, or a shatter on your hands. So that was an important part of it. Now, Durand had experimented with this process because the story goes he had heard about the, you know, Appert's approach through a colleague of his who came from France. And so he hears about this process and he's very skeptical at first. So he starts to experiment with it himself and he finds that it seems to work. So then he tries to get some backing from the uh, the Royal Societies of the UK, where you had these groups of very learned people who were part of organizations that were would fund scientific discoveries and scientific advancements. So he canned some food. He puts some food inside iron cans coated in tin, and he uses the canning process to sterilize the cans and the food and then to seal it away. And then he has uh, a collection of these cans loaded onto a Navy vessel that then goes off on a voyage of some sort. And it's gone for like half a year. It does its shippy ship stuff and it sails around and then comes back eventually. And then Durand and some folks from the Royal Society end up going in and they get the 10 cans, they hack them open, and they find that, yes, indeed, half a year later, the food that was stored inside those cans is still good. It's still edible. It's unspoiled. So Durand gets his patent in 1810, same time that Appert is getting his reward from France. And this is when we say that food in tinned cans originates. It's in 1810, effectively. Durand sold his patent to some businessmen. He did not go into business for himself to become a, a canner. Instead, he sells it to a couple of entrepreneurs who looked to turn this process into a profitable business. Now, they were already familiar with the process of tinning. So tinning is when you actually apply a very thin coating of tin to some other material, typically iron or steel. So the iron or steel provides durability and strength, right? It's a very strong metal. But the problem is these metals are prone to corrosion, to rusting. Tin is not nearly as strong as iron or steel, but it also is resistant to corrosion. So by applying a thin layer of tin to an iron or steel surface, you can benefit from the strength of the underlying material while protecting against rust. And with the corrosive nature of some foods, like some foods are really acidic, for example, uh, or really salty, a coating of tin is absolutely necessary to protect the material from 
actually eating through the can itself, like to cause corrosion. The whole point of the can was to keep food preserved and safe to eat. It would hardly be safe if the food actually ate the can. But these early cans, as you might imagine, were really thick and heavy and hard to get into, right? I mean, we're talking about cans made out of iron uh, and then coated in tin. And often these early ones were made, you know, by hand. There was not like a, a, a process, a mechanical process to make the cans that was really easy to repeat. But they were effective. They could keep food safe inside. And the food wasn't just safe from spoilage. It was largely safe from being eaten because getting to the food was really hard. The general approach to getting into one of these cans was to bust out a hammer and chisel. And then you just go to town on the top of that can in an effort to get into the food inside. Like there was no can opener. There was no pull tab. There was nothing that you could use to open these cans apart from tools at your disposal to cut in, pierce the lid, pry it off, and and hopefully not spill all the food in the process. The canning process in general, and the use of tinned cans in particular, slowly spread throughout the UK and Europe, and a few years later, like around 1818 or so, it reached America. The first American patent for tinned cans goes out in 1825. It was awarded to an Englishman named Thomas Kennett, who had built his own canning business back in Old Blighty and decided that he wanted to expand over to the New World as well. Now, despite the spread of the practice of canning itself, the proliferation of tin cans actually moved fairly slowly. Complicating matters was that it would take time for engineers to develop methods to mass-produce cans. So in the early days of producing tinned cans, the methods in, in employment would allow for about six cans to be produced in an hour at a single station. Six cans in an hour is not very much. You can't mass-produce at that speed. A man named Henry Evans would end up creating a way to make cans at much faster speeds using a die. Uh, this was not the same Henry Evans that Macaulay Culkin would play in the film The Good Son, though if you are not careful with your search terms when you're searching for research about this person, you're going to end up with a lot of villain wikis about the fictional character Henry Evans from The Good Son. I know because I kept wondering why Macaulay Culkin was popping up while I was trying to search the history of tinned can manufacturing. Though the actual historical Henry Evans was active in the 1840s, and he used a die to significantly speed up tin can production. Now, a die is a tool in machinery that allows to form or cut metal into a specific shape. And there are lots of different kinds of dies. Like some dies are a piece of metal that has a very small hole cut into it, and you draw other metal through this hole in order to form wire, for example. That's a type of, of die. There are casting dies. These dies are used to create molds, right? So this is like a, a form that you have, and then you create a mold around that form, and then you use that mold to cast copies of the die's shape to make whatever you know component you're trying to make. 
And then there was a third type of die, uh, still is a third type of die, called stamping dies. And these are used with a mechanical press. And you stamp material into a specific shape. So the die that Henry Evans made to produce tin cans was of this last type. It was a stamping die. And thus using a pressing machine and the right die and the right material, a worker could make a brand new tin can with one operation of this press. So what had started out as a six cans per hour job per station now became 60 per hour using a single machine. And a manufacturing facility might have several of these presses. So it became possible to produce cans on a much larger scale. We're still not in like the modern era of mass manufacture, but it now became more of a practical technology, right? Like before, if you were only able to produce six cans in an hour per station, you're probably not producing enough to make a a huge difference. Like you'd be dedicating your work to probably a very specific purpose, such as uh, canning foods for the military, but not for the average person. Now you are able to do this at a bigger scale. It was starting to open up more opportunities. Around that same time, another inventor named Alan Taylor patented a machine that could produce cylindrical can ends. So like the top and bottom of the cans. So you had Evan's method that produced the the body of the tin can, and you had Taylor's method that would produce the ends of the can. We were really in business now, even though we still didn't have an actual can opener. Another big development happened in the mid-1850s when Henry Bessemer discovered how to process cast iron into steel. So steel would become the preferred method to provide the stability for tin cans rather than iron. And you could use a whole lot less steel to provide that same level of stability. And thus, you could significantly reduce the weight and the thickness of the cans, which would make them much more practical for common use further down the line. Now, we're right on the verge of it. It was in 1858. That's when we get our hero, at least as far as can openers goes. Because from 1810 to 1858, for for nearly 50 years, we had this approach to preserving food in tin-plated iron cans, but we did not have a dedicated means of opening the cans apart from brute force and a hammer and chisel. But in 1858, we get the brilliant Ezra J. Warner from the United States with a patent on a device that would serve as the first dedicated can opener. I'll tell you more about that can opener in just a moment, but we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
Okay, before the break, I mentioned that in 1858, Ezra J. Warner gets a patent for a dedicated can opener. It did not look like the type of can opener that you typically use today. The kind that has the handles and the little uh, uh, twisty key-like device, and you put it at the top of the can, and you you squeeze the handles together, and it pierces the can, and you, you turn the little key-like device, and it rotates the can, and you open it up. No, it didn't look anything like that. Instead, it was what folks would later describe as a bayonet and sickle style can opener. So part of this can opener had a piece of metal that came to a point and you would use this point, this bayonet to pierce a hole in the lid of the can. And typically you were aiming at near the edge of the can, right? Near the edge of the top of the lid. So you pierce the lid, then you would insert the sickle-shaped part of the can opener into the hole you just made. And using a sawing motion, you know, using the end of the handle as like a lever and and pushing down and pulling up over and over and over again, you would force the blade of the sickle to cut through the tinned lid of your can. Now, according to Ezra's patent, this is quoting directly from the patent, quote, a child may use it without difficulty or risk, end quote. However, a cursory examination of contemporary reports about this can opener, as well as the practice of what grocers did at the time, suggests that maybe Ezra was being a little overly generous with his assessment of how easy his invention was to use, because most accounts say that the remnants of the tin can, once you were done using this can opener on them, were jagged and sharp. There are more than a few articles that would joke about you had to be careful or you could lose a finger in the process of trying to remove the lid that you had just sawn off the end of the can. Soldiers in the Civil War used the tool because, you know, they were already in a pretty dangerous situation. So throwing in the potential to lose a finger while getting at your beans was just part of the, the joys of war, I guess. The can openers were not sold to the general public. In fact, if you were to go to a grocer's as a regular citizen and you wanted to buy something that was in a tin, the grocer would actually go ahead and open the tin for you right there in the store. I'm assuming you would transfer the contents to something else like a jar. Uh, but the reason for this was because, you know, it, it required a bit of practice to get these cans open and it required a lot of care to make sure you did so without cutting yourself. So again, this was not something that was sold to the general public. The advancements in tin can manufacturing meant that the cans themselves were becoming much more thin and lightweight, and there were new methods made to affix a lid to the top of a can. This also would improve things quite a bit. These methods meant the lids weren't harder to get into than Fort Knox the way they had been in the past. So you could actually create an alternative to the separate can opener. And in 1866, a guy named Jay Osterholt uh, received a patent for a new type of tin can, one where you could use a key opener with the can. Either the key would already be attached to the can or you would insert the flap of metal into the key and then bend it around the end of the key. Then you just twist the key. So it's sort of a predecessor to the pull tab opener that you see on a lot of cans these days. 
You can actually still find some types of tinned foods that have a version of the key opener, like stuff like um, like tinned sardines often have a key opener on the lid. And as the name implies, the lid of the can has a little uh, protrusion, essentially, that's shaped like a key. And it's either already attached to the lid or you attach it the way I just mentioned. When you twist the key, it starts to pry the lid off from the top of the tin. At least it's supposed to. I've never actually had much luck with these, but that's probably because I'm also left-handed. And I find it really awkward to hold the can and twist the key the way you're supposed to, because I want to do it uh, the opposite way. So it's it's really frustrating for me to use, try and access these cans. Uh, but that's a me problem. Uh, generally speaking, they worked really well. And actually, a lot of different companies came up with different variations of this idea. So... For a while, a lot of the cans that were coming out had some form of key used to peel back a lid so that you could get access to what was inside. And that was the primary way people got access to the food that were inside tinned cans, at least for for the general consumer. For things like commercial purposes, like restaurants or, again, like big organizations like the military, it was a different story. But for the general consumer, that became kind of the go-to. Now, other inventors were still working to improve the design that Ezra Warner had come up with with the first can opener. Uh, One design I saw was kind of interesting. It also had a bayonet-style piercer component to it. This will be a little tricky to explain in audio, but I'll give it a go. So imagine that you have uh, a can opener that's essentially a handle And it extends out. At one point, you have an adjustable blade. It can move, you know, up or down the length of the can opener. At the very end of this tool, you have a hook, a sharp hook. And what you do is you take a can, and instead of trying to poke a hole near the edge of the tin, which is the way Ezra's can opener worked, you would try and poke a hole in the center of the lid. And the hook would stay in that hole. Meanwhile, you would adjust the blade that could move up or down the length of the can opener so that it would be right at the edge of the can's lid. So like right up against the lip of the can. And you would press down using the can opener like a lever and pierce the blade into uh, the edge of the can. Then you would twist the can or and or you know move the can opener in a circular direction around the can and you would physically cut through the can lid so the hook would remain pierced in the center of the lid it would act as sort of like a hub i think of it almost like the spindle on a a turntable with a with a record album the hook would remain there and the blade would be on the edge of the tin and you would just twist the can and push the the Uh, handle of the can opener to start cutting your way around the circumference of the can. And at the end, you could use that little hook in the center of the lid to help lift the lid out of the can and get access to the food inside. Uh, Again, you would end up with some pretty sharp edges, but I actually really dug the simplicity of this design. There are lots of videos online, by the way, of vintage can openers and folks demonstrating how these would work. Uh, again, I would probably have a lot of trouble with them because it looks like most of them were made for right-handers. So I would want to try and push 
the wrong way, which means the dull side of the blade would be what I'd be pushing against. I wouldn't get anywhere, uh, but they are really, really cool. Then we get to a guy named William Lyman around 1870. And old Billy created a can opener similar to the one I just described, where you would use a bayonet-like hook protrusion on the end to pierce the center of the tin lid. And near the edge of the tin, you had, again, an adjustable blade, but this blade was shaped like a wheel. So it's not just a a razor-sharp blade that you would pierce into the edge of the, the can. It was a wheeled blade, and you'd push down hard enough to make that piercing, and you would turn the can, and the wheeled blade would also turn as you were rotating the can and cut through the top of the lid. That wheeled blade would become a main component of modern can openers. But at this stage in the 1870s, we're still looking at a pretty simple, purely mechanical gadget. Now, the process for manufacturing cans continued to advance significantly over the following decades, with companies finding new ways to make cans quickly and efficiently and consistently and out of progressively thinner materials while still being, you know, sturdy and stable, and most importantly, hermetically sealed. Various methods to affix lids to cans were being developed and deployed over the years. The humble can opener would also see lots of different variations as well, though nearly all of them involved putting in a pretty good amount of elbow grease to get the stuff what was inside the can safely out of it, while also, you know, keeping all your fingers intact in the process. So the next big advancement for can openers wouldn't happen until 1931. So remember, we were just in 1870. Now we're all the way up to 1931. And there were a couple of big advancements that happened right around this time. First up was the invention of a guy named Charles Arthur Bunker, who got a patent in 1931 for this approach. So it was Bunker who created a toothed wheel system, like gears, inside the can opener. So you would position the can opener blade on the edge of a tin lid uh, held in place by the can's lip. And, you know, using leverage, you would pierce the lid of the tin and the geared wheels would actually grip the edge of the the can's lid, like the, the little lip. So they're gripping together. And when you would turn a handle on the end of the can opener, it would turn one of these two gears and the other gear would also end up having to turn. And this would force it would you know pinch the can and force it to rotate. And thus it would be pressed against this wheeled blade that was part of the can opener. So you'd have to twist like a dozen times or so and you would have yourself an open can. The geared wheel component became the other major part of modern day manual can openers. Uh, coupled with that wheeled blade that came from William Lyman's invention in 1870. Now, I need to mention, there was actually another company that was using a dual-wheel mechanism to grip a can for the purposes of cutting the lid open. And the company that made this was called the Star Can Opener Company. And in fact, they sued Bunker's own company, the Bunker Clancy Company, because they said, well, we already made this invention, this mechanism of using this wheeled system to grip a can so that when you turn a handle, you rotate the can and you can cut it open. So Bunker didn't actually invent that. We did six years ago. But the lawsuit got thrown out 
for some reason or another. I'm not sure what happened. And it is weird that this company that had an invention that predated the patent by six years uh, was essentially dismissed. Anyway, those gears made all the difference, I guess, in that lawsuit. And Bunker's company would also introduce the world's first electric can opener, also in 1931. And it, too, used those geared wheels to grip onto the lip of a tin can lid. And in this case, instead of having to manually turn a little handle over and over and over again, electricity would power a motor to make those wheels turn. And that would mean that the electric motor would cause the can to rotate and the opener's blade would be pressed against the lid of the can and thus cut through the lid like butter. Unfortunately for Bunker, he was a bit too far ahead of his time. The United States and the world in general was still in the process of electrification, and a lot of households had not yet been wired for electricity, and the ones that were didn't really have can opener on the priority list of the stuff what they wanted to have electrified. So the electric can opener dates all the way back to 1931, but it would be another couple of decades before the technology would be considered practical for the average person and become a consumer item. In fact, the first commercially successful electric can opener design would launch in the 1950s, and it was a father-daughter project. Uh, the father in this case was a guy named Walter Hess Bodel, and his daughter Elizabeth Bodel contributed significantly to the actual design and aesthetic of the device. And together, they made a countertop electric can opener that was freestanding. It was attractive in that 1950s kind of way, and it actually was a, a, a commercial success. Now, this pretty much brings us up to speed on the general evolution of can openers. Uh, there are some bits that I didn't really cover, like there's the industrial bonzer line of can openers. They kind of look like a combination of a vice and a with a crank on top. Uh these were made for commercial operations like restaurants and such. So you would mount it on like an industrial table in like a, a, you know, a restaurant setting and you would place, you know, your large canned goods, like the, the big cans of canned food onto essentially a rotating platform that would sit at the base of this device. You would clamp the blade down and by turning the crank, you would rotate the can and cut open the lid these were really useful, again, in industrial settings, not so much for consumers, but they were really important. I also didn't cover a can opener that I really like, a style of can opener I really like. As I mentioned, I'm left-handed. That means that I would often struggle with, you know, the manual can openers. Even left-handed designed can openers always felt weird to me, maybe because I had forced myself to, you know, struggle with a right-handed can opener and... I mean, it always looked like a horror show. Like I did not do a good job at opening cans. When when my family finally got an electric can opener, when I was maybe like 10 or so, I thought it was fantastic because suddenly I could open cans just like anyone else. But flash forward uh, a few years back, I am shopping for an electric can opener and I found a hands-free one and I actually really love it. Uh, and there are lots of different variations for this style of can opener. So I'm not going to call out the specific brand I have. Uh, there are lots of different ones that use the same principle, so you can find them uh, you know, in places like online stores and stuff. 
I'll just describe how it works. So it looks like it's just a little like handle, um, actually a thick handle because it is battery powered. So the batteries fit inside this and you lay it across the top of a can, like flat out across the top of a can. It, it you know, has a little section that goes over the, the uh, edge of the lip. And when you press a button on the top of this can opener, it has wheels that grip that lip edge and a blade that cuts into the can. And then the motor turns the wheels and the whole can opener just rotates over the top of the can. It makes a full circle. Once it does, you hit the button again. You can lift the top off. Mine cuts the the lid on the outside edge. So the whole like lip of the can comes off at the top and makes it really simple to uh, to remove and then access the food that's inside. And uh, so just with a touch of a button, I can get into my SpaghettiOs, which is absolutely brilliant in my mind. Like I said, there's lots of different variations on this specific design. But the interesting thing to me is that the elements that were in present in like William Lyman's uh, uh, can opener in 1870, that, that wheeled blade or the one of uh, from from 1931, where you get the geared wheels in in bunkers design. Those are all part of these hands-free can openers too. They're still making use of those, those innovations that are now, you know, in one case, well over a century old. And then the other one, we're getting pretty close to it. I just think that's really cool that it's just, again, uh, slight variations on tried and true designs. But that's the story of how Napoleon Bonaparte led to the creation of the can opener, sort of which is kind of similar to when I say that the reason we have lawnmowers is because folks in Europe really liked building castles and going to war with each other. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm going to find out that some other random invention, like, I don't know, the adjustable office chair actually owes its existence to medieval warfare or something. We'll have to find out about that one. Anyway, I hope you found this history of the can opener interesting and understand now why it took almost 50 years from the invention of the tin can to get to the invention of the tin can opener. And maybe you have a greater appreciation for can openers. I I know in my household, uh, I really appreciated the electric can opener because again, it gave me the ability to access canned foods in a way that was much easier than the manual can opener method, which I always struggled with. And I also know that were other entities in my house that appreciated the can opener the way I did. And that would be my cats, because as soon as they heard the electric can opener going, they would flock to me. So they had, I think, the appropriate reverence for can openers, something that we should all reflect on upon occasion, because tinned food often gets a bad rap. But seriously, modern society wouldn't exist the way it does without it. And uh, arguably, without the can opener it never would have been as as important an invention. So yeah, just thought it was an interesting topic to cover for an episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you are all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Business, it's all the things that keep this world turning. And behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving. It's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint, the startup and the stadium, hospitals and hotels, banks and restaurants nationwide, all choose the advanced network, cybersecurity solutions, and round-the-clock trusted partnership from Comcast Business, the company that powers more businesses than anyone else. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Call or visit comcastbusiness.com to learn more. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.